0: Good evening. I appreciate that, Jake. I it's so good to be back in Abilene. It's good to be with Oldham Lane friends and family and Christ and our Baker Heights brothers and sisters. It's good to see them. I I may need an armed escort when I leave tonight. I'm not sure how angry they still are. It's it's hard leaving a congregation. It's hard leaving the people that you love and that you've come to know so well. It's hard going somewhere new. I was thinking about a story about a preacher that uh, went to a new congregation and uh, he wanted to kind of figure out, kind of get a feel for the congregation. It's hard to know, you know, what does this new congregation need? What do they know already? What, What have they been talking about? What Bible stories are they familiar with? And what Bible stories are they not familiar with? So he thought, well, here would be a good way to kind of get to know the congregation, kind of work my way through the classes, maybe do some children's classes and some teen classes and adult classes. So he started out with the sixth graders. He thought, that would be a good place to start. Not only will I know what they're learning and know about, but might might give me a good idea about their parents and what their parents have been teaching them or not teaching them. So he thought, I'd just start with some stories in the Bible and see if they're familiar with them. So he said, I'll start with an easy one. And he went into class and he asked the sixth graders, he said, okay, kids, i got an easy question for you. Who knocked down the walls of Jericho? crickets, just like right now, crickets, right? Nobody was saying anything, and he thought, are you kidding me? Nobody knows the answer to that. Nobody was saying anything. He said, guys, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? One of the little boys kind of timidly said, well, don't look at me. I didn't do it. <laughs> so he thought, okay, yeah, that, that tells me a whole lot I need to know about this. So he, he went to the deacons, and he said, guys, I just want you to know what happened when I went into the sixth grade class, and here's what happened, here's what I asked them, and here was the response. And he looked at the deacons and they didn't say anything. They were all real quiet. Finally, one of the deacons spoke up and said, well, I know all those kids. And if they said they didn't do it, they didn't do it. (laughs) So you just never know. I, I know that this has been a great series for you. I know that you've been talking about Jesus and the cross, specifically about the things that Jesus said on the cross and considering what that means for us. Uh, Chris asked me to wrap up the series, and that's always an incredibly intimidating thing to do, to wrap it up, especially since I didn't get to hear all of the wonderful lessons, and especially because you had such a great series. The title that Chris gave me was A Cry For You. He asked me to talk about the fact that Jesus died for us. My mind immediately went to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 where Jesus himself says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And I thought we could, we could spend all night talking about that beautiful idea, that picture of what does that mean for someone to give their life as a ransom, in other words, a redemption payment, right? Right? Uh, what does that mean for someone to give their life as a ransom for the many? It, it implies, of course, that the many are slaves, are in bondage, or maybe have forfeited their life. Because that's what redemption means. That's what it means to give something as a ransom payment. It, it means that, that something or someone is in bondage, or maybe they're a prisoner that's going to be executed for their crimes and something is given. Maybe it's a land that's given. Maybe it's a life that's given. Maybe it's money that's given in order to buy back the prisoner, the captive. And that's what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? That he sacrificed his life. He substituted himself as a ransom payment for all of us. But we know that, don't we? I think we're pretty familiar with that. We're, we understand That Jesus died for us, that he gave his life as a substitute for our lives, that his death means our life, his sacrifice means our freedom, his blood means that our debt was, as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, our debt is canceled, it's erased, it's obliterated, and that's good news, isn't it? That Jesus died for us, that he cried out on the cross, for us that he agonized for us that he went through all of the horrible things that he went through for us and that's good and we need to talk about that we need to remember that and we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds but my mind kept coming back to mark chapter 10 and i'll be honest with you here's here's really transparent moment i worked on this lesson and and probably deleted my outline three or four times and i had a whole outline typed out And I said, that's that's not what Jesus was talking about in Mark 10, Wes. Wes, that's not the context. He he definitely says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. But the more I thought about it, I said, "But, but in the context, he's not explaining what a ransom payment is. He assumes that the people to whom he's saying that, his disciples, they already know what a ransom payment is. He's telling them that what he's about to do the cross, should change everything about the way that they live. And that's where I want to start tonight. I want to ask us, we know what Jesus did. We know the agony that he went through. We know that he cried out, I thirst. We know that he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We know he cried out, why have you forsaken me? We know the horrible agony that he went through on the cross. We know how he struggled to breathe and how he pushed himself up on the nails in his feet so that he could say the words that he said. And we know that he did it for us. And we know that because of Jesus and the cross, we can be ransomed. We can be redeemed. We can be saved. But how much does the cross change your everyday life? How much do you think about the cross every day where you say, you know what, because of the cross, I need to do things this way. I I want to do things that way, but because of Jesus and the cross, I'm going to do things this way. How often does the cross change the way that you treat people? How often does the cross change the way you treat your spouse? How often does the cross affect the way you treat your neighbor? How often does the cross affect the way you treat your enemies? You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't really have any enemies. Good, I'm glad, right? But you've had people that have treated you bit poorly, haven't you? You've had people that have been rude and unkind, maybe said and done hateful things to you Maybe did things that were just inconsiderate to you. How does the cross affect, and impact, and change the way you treat those people? Because did you know that as the apostles wrote, and as Jesus even pointed forward to the cross, the cross is always pointed to as something that should change the way you do everything the cross should change the way you live your everyday life it should change the way you go to school or the way you go to work the way you treat your spouse or the way you treat your neighbor or the way you treat your enemy the cross should change everything but i'm afraid for a lot of us we would simply stop at the thought the cross means i get to go to heaven someday The cross means I get to be forgiven. And praise God that's true, right? But there's more to it than that. And and again, I wrote out a sermon and I was just going to talk about how good it is to be saved. But but the more I kept looking at Mark chapter 10, the more it kept humbling me. and, And the more I thought, you know, that's the message that the Lord's church needs to hear. In Abilene, in Plano, in the United States. In the world. This is the message that Jesus told to his disciples about why he was going to the cross and how it should change everything. So, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. It, It really shouldn't have been a surprise, right? When Jesus was arrested, when he was turned over to the authorities, when he was tried, convicted wrongly, and then laid out on a piece of wood, and nails driven through his hands and feet, and lifted up to suffocate and die, and then buried in a tomb, and then to raise from the dead. It shouldn't have been a surprise because he talked about it, and he told them several times what was going to happen. He began to tell them again what was to happen to him. So look at verse 33, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I mean, isn't it it awesome? Isn't it awesome to know that Jesus knew what was coming? He knew that he would be flogged. He knew that he would be spit on. He knew that he would be mocked and ridiculed. He knew that a crown of thorns would be put on his head. He knew that nails would be driven through his feet and through his hands. And yet he went. He knew that he would cry out, I thirst. He knew that he would leave his mother without her son. And that he'd have to ask John to watch over her. He knew that he would cry out, it is finished. He knew that he would cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me or my God rather why have you forsaken me he knew everything that was going to happen yet he marched on yet he went why we know why for God so loved the world right because he loved us and he wanted to give his life as a ransom payment for us he wanted to redeem us he wanted to buy us from the slavery of sin and set us free He wanted to purchase us to be his people. He knew what he was going to suffer, yet he marched on to Jerusalem. And he told them, this is what's what's going to happen. This is how everything's going to play out. Now, look at verse 35. I mean, I just kind of have to laugh at this point, right? It's okay to laugh when we read the Bible, isn't it? Because it reminds me of me, Right? These guys, verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) I mean, no response about what's going to happen in Jerusalem or about the death or the mocking or the spitting or the, the crucifying or the rising. It's like, Yeah, that sounds rough, Master. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, Son of Man, going to go through a lot of bad stuff. That sounds horrible. Yeah, but back, and let's talk about me for a second, right? Let's talk about me. I want to ask you a favor. We want to ask you a favor. We want you to do something for us. That's how we tend to be, isn't it? That's how we tend to be. That's, That's our problem, isn't it? That's been our problem, mankind's. Humankind's problem, humanity's problem since the garden, isn't it? God says, Listen, you're my people, and I created you to be my image bearers and to have dominion over the earth and over all the animals, and it's gonna be wonderful. We're gonna walk in the garden, and you're gonna, you're gonna be my people, and you're gonna have dominion over all of this stuff. And hey, there's a tree over there, don't eat of that, but otherwise, everything's great. Wait a second. A tree, what about the tree? let's talk about the tree. I want some of that tree. it sounds good I want I want me, 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 me me. What are you keeping from me? Because I want something good for me. isn't that how we tend to be? God, God tells you all these wonderful things about himself and about who we can be in him and how we can bring glory to him and what he's going to do for us and and then we, we still, yeah, that's nice, Lord, but let's talk about me and the seat I'm going to have in your kingdom, in your glory. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, right? We want better seats than everybody else. We want the good seats, right? Yeah. I know those other ten guys are back there, but uh, Lord, if you could uh, see that we get the best seats because we're kind of the best ones, you know. I don't want to say anything bad about Peter because he might hear me, but I'm a little bit better than Peter. And I'd really like if you could arrange things. And Matthew's gospel even says, Mama has a hand in this, right, in asking for these seats in the right and the left. Oh, how self-absorbed, how self-centered, how selfish we can be, can't we? Not concerned about anybody else. Not concerned about where they're going to sit. Not, gonna, not concerned about their honor. Not concerned about them at all, but concerned about me. I want to make sure I've got a good seat. I, I want to make sure that I have authority. I want to make sure that I have power. I want to make sure that I get to call some shots. I want to make sure that when the ladder is there, i got a pretty high rung on the ladder because I think I deserve that, right? I want one of the best seats in the house. I want one of the best seats in the kingdom. I want to be able to call some of the shots. I want a place of leadership. I want a place of authority. Verse 39, or sorry, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you, don't, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Oh, what's he talking about? His death. His suffering, his agony, his crying out. What's about to happen? Are are you able to go through that? Do you want to be immersed in the suffering in which I'm about to be immersed? Do, Do you really think you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? That you would have the audacity to ask for such a seat? Do you really think you could do that or go through what I'm about to go through? Verse 39 and they said, we're, we're able. Yeah, absolutely. Sign us up. That'd be great. Yes, whatever it is you're drinking, Lord, I want a cup of it. Whatever it is you're going to be baptized with, I want to be baptized with the same thing because I want a good seat for myself. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptize, baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will go through similar suffering and pain and death. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, right, now they, wait, what, wait, wait, what's going on here? James and John doing what? They're asking for what? They want to sit where? I cannot believe they would have the audacity to do such a thing. And they sent their mom to have a part of this? I can't believe that they would do that. When the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them. Now, again, remember the context of what's going on, the way that Mark has laid this out for us here, is that Jesus has just explained what he's about to do, what he's about to endure, what he's about to suffer, and all these guys can think about is themselves. And again... Don't we have a tendency to do that? When it comes to religion even, when it comes to our Christianity even, don't we have a tendency to all we're concerned about is making sure we've got a, a house on that golden street, right? I just want to make sure I've got my mansion up there and I want to make sure I've got a good mansion, I've got a good view from my mansion. I just want to make sure that, that my seat in glory is good, right? So easy. To be consumed with whether that's from a materialistic standpoint we just want to be comfortable we just want to have pleasure we just want to enjoy ourselves and we're just absorbed and centered on thinking about and chasing after selfish things or even when it comes to religious things we're simply consumed with ourselves Even as it centers around Jesus, even as it centers around their discipleship, it's still about them. And how often are we guilty of the same thing? Here Jesus is talking about his death and what he's going through, and all they can think about is their seat in the kingdom. But how often do we do the same thing? When the subject of the cross comes up, when the subject of the blood comes up, when the subject of Jesus' suffering and his death come up, we think, yeah, that means I get a good seat, right? And again, we have a tendency to simply think about what that means for the benefits to me. We have a tendency to be at the center of all of our thinking. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, over, over, top, top rung, right? And and it's amazing. I mean, nothing's changed, has it? We still tend to think of leadership this way, right? We still tend to think of greatness this way. The guy at the top. Right? The guy that has the gold makes the rules. Right, The guy that's on the top of the pyramid. The guy that's at the top of the ladder. The guy that's climbed the mountain. He's the top dog. He's the big cheese. He calls the shots. That's the seed I want to have. Right? I want to be able to lord it over somebody. Right? I want to be able to tell somebody what to do. I want to be the one that other people look at and say, Wow, that's, that's an important guy right there. Or that's an important lady right there. Nothing's changed. in The Gentile world, right? It's still the way it is in the world. Those who are great, those who are considered rulers, lord it over them, exercise authority over them. That's the way the world is structured. The most important people are on... Wait, that was a question. That wasn't rhetorical. I know I tricked you. But the most important people in the world are on top, Right? That's the way the world thinks of things. They're over other people. And that's what the disciples want. They want a seat at the top. They want to be on the higher rung of the ladder. They're not saying, Jesus, I want your seat, but I want a better seat than Peter. And I want a better seat than Andrew. And I want a better seat than those guys. I want to make sure that I get to be on at least your right or your left, one way or the other. I'm good, so long as it's better than so-and-so so long as I'm greater than so-and-so, so so long as I'm seen as more successful than so-and-so. And And our world does it, don't they? And nothing has changed. The the styles have changed. The The way that we display it has changed. Maybe then it was a chariot, or maybe then it was this kind of clothes. But now it's just a different way of displaying our own greatness and importance and significance, right? To say I'm an important person, I'm a successful person, Look at me, I've made good choices in my life. Even religiously, we have a tendency to be self-absorbed. And Jesus says, that's the way it is in the Gentile world. But, verse 43, I love the buts in the Bible, don't you? But, this is the way the world is, but you, and you, my people, this people, my kingdom must be different. It cannot be the way it is in the world in the church. But the, the church, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' citizens, the citizens of the heavenly kingdom are called to be a counter cultural community. Right? But it shall not be so among you. You see, the people that are considered great, the people that are considered rulers, are the ones that are over other people in the world. That's what he says in verse 42. But it shall not be so among you. Greatness in the kingdom of God cannot be determined the way that greatness in the world is determined. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Wow. I mean, I know you've heard it, and I know you're familiar with it probably. but I mean, can we stop and just appreciate the significance of what Jesus is saying? Can we appreciate just how much this would change everything if we really applied it? That we cannot determine success and greatness and leadership the way the world does. That in the kingdom of God, things have to be different. And greatness in the kingdom of God is about taking on a position of servitude. And even one of bondage to, in a certain extent, to a certain extent, right? Where we say, I am my brother's keeper. I am my brother's servant. I will wash my brother's or my sister's feet. I will take a place of lowliness, even a place of shame, so that I can serve my brother or my sister in Christ. That's greatness in the kingdom of God, not. Not so that we can have some sort of false piety or humility, because it's even possible to do that, isn't it? Man, it's so easy to get caught up and self-absorbed, isn't it? Where even in our humility and even in our service, we're posting it to Facebook or to Instagram or to Twitter and say, hey, look at how much I've served people. Look at how much I've helped people. Aren't I good? Aren't I Christ-like? We may not say it that way. We've learned how to humble brag, haven't we? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, don't don't pray in order to be seen by men. If you pray, you need to pray in secret. Then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Will reward you. Will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret. When When you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because if you do it in order to be seen by people and say, look, I'm generous, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm praying, I'm pious, I'm religious, I'm sacrificial, and you do it to be seen by people, that is your reward. But but if you do it in secret, and you do it to bring glory and honor to Jesus, then our Father will reward you. And I think in order to find out what he will reward you with, you've got to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are these kind of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they'll be called children of God. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they will be comforted. Because they will be satisfied. You see? God rewards us with himself. But not if if we do it to come across as being successful or great or wonderful, not if we do it in the eyes of man. In order to be a follower of Jesus, we've got to take on this mantle of servitude where we say, I don't want any praise, glory. I I don't want anybody to pat me on the back. I, I just want to serve people. I just want to wash people's feet. I want to bind myself to you in love. Church, how, how often when we do something good, we serve in the church, we help somebody, we serve somebody, we, we're active in a ministry. And by the way, before I say what I'm about to say, you need to thank those people, amen? You need to thank those people that are active and doing things, but when it's us, when it's you, it's doing good, and nobody says thank you. And nobody says, way to go, we appreciate you. How often do we say, well, then I'm just not going to do it anymore. And we just walk away. It humbles me to realize Jesus calls his followers to something radically different, to take on a position of humble, sacrificial servitude where we serve others Why? Here, look at what he says next. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see why I said what I said in the beginning? That we could talk about the, the ransom that Jesus paid when he went to the cross, and that's good. We need to know that Jesus redeemed us from a life of lawlessness. Jesus redeemed us from a life of slavery to sin. Jesus redeemed us from condemnation where we were going to die and stay dead and tormented in hell forever. And Jesus redeemed us from what we deserved and gave us a better life. He gave us life. He brought us from death to life. And we could talk all night about how good it is to be ransomed, to be redeemed. But what Jesus is saying here is saying, this is the life I call you to. A life of servitude, and I know it's a hard word, I don't even like it. A life of slavery to, a life of love for, a life of humility and sacrifice for others. This is the life I called you to. Why? Because even I, the Son of Man, who deserve to be worshipped, who deserve to be on the highest point, to, to deserve to be the, the big cheese, the, the top of the ladder. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So, church, here's what I want us to take away tonight is that the cry of the cross is for you. It is for me, it is for our redemption but it's also for our imitation. Do you see that? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He's saying, this is the life I called you to, to take up your cross and follow me. I want you to serve others. Why? Because even I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I call you, Jesus is saying, not only to be redeemed by the cross, but to imitate The cross Jesus cried out in agony on the cross and his cries were for your redemption and they were also for your imitation do we realize how often the New Testament calls us to imitate the suffering the sacrifice the service of the cross we often talk about how Jesus is our example to follow but do we realize that most of the time when Paul or Peter or even Jesus himself is calling us to follow his example It's in the sense that he gave his life as a ransom for others. It's that he was willing to give up himself for other people. He was willing to do what was in other people's best interest rather than his own. He calls us to that radically different way of living. We know John 3.16, don't we? We know John 3.16. In fact, you could go out into the community and most people could quote John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Yes. Oh, praise God. Thank God. Yes, that's true. That is good news. But but think about 1 John 3.16. When you think about John 3.16, think about 1 John 3.16. And John says this, by this, by this we know love, that Jesus, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's good to think about the cross and think about how he cried out for our redemption but we also need to remember that he cried out for our imitation. That he calls you and he calls me to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls us to live a life where we love, as John says, not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. John says, listen, you you can't say that you love God if you don't love your brother. And you can't say you love your brother if you look at him and he's in need of clothing and food and you don't do anything to help him. Jesus calls us to be selfless. Jesus calls us to sacrifice. The cross stands as a reminder that Jesus cried out for our redemption and cried out for us to imitate him. Think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. We know it, don't we? where Paul encourages us to have the mind of Christ, he says this, he says, don't do anything, do nothing, do how much? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see how James and John were doing the very opposite of that? They considered themselves to be more significant than the other ten, and they wanted the good seats. And the other ten probably wanted the same thing. We want the good seats. We're more significant. We're more important. And Jesus calls us to a radically different lifestyle. Where he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. He goes on to say that we need to have the mind of Christ and explains how that mind of Christ, is a, that it's in the fact that God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, were equal and that Jesus gave up his place there and took on the form of a servant by becoming human. And he became obedient even to the point of death. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Jesus cried out for you, he cried out for your redemption, and he cried out for you to imitate him, to stop being like the world, to stop doing things out of selfishness or ambition or conceit, to stop considering yourself to be more significant than anyone else. He calls us to love not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also our neighbor. And let us not be like the the lawyer who wanted to argue about who the neighbor is, right? That's what we want to do, right? Jesus wants you to love people and consider other people to be more significant than you. And we say, which people, right? Which people? Some people I'll do that for. I don't know about everybody. And so he tells the story of the Good Samaritan to remind you to be a neighbor to everybody. And Jesus not only calls us to love our brothers and sisters and to live this kind of radically different sacrificial service type of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our neighbors, but even radically so to our enemies. And those who hate you and despise you and persecute you. And Paul Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is what it looks like to live out the cross because you don't get the redemption of the cross without the imitation of the cross. Even Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps, willing to suffer. To love. Jesus calls us to break the cycle. Do we see a world that's consumed with selfishness? Do we see a world that's consumed with self-interest? Jesus calls us to be radically different. It's been wonderful the last few days, in spite of the horrible, horrible things going on with the hurricane, to see selflessness, sacrifice, love, Service to others, that's good, isn't it? And the whole world can applaud that and say, that's good. And Jesus calls you and I to live out that kind of service daily. Jesus cried out for you. Jesus cried out for the many. He gave his life as a ransom for many, for our redemption, and also for our imitation. I don't know about you, church, but I need to to make some changes in my life. I need to not only appreciate the cross for its redemption value. I need to appreciate the cross for its imitation value. I need to make some bigger sacrifices. I need to love others more than I love myself. I need to consider them more significant than I do myself. I need to live out the life of service that Jesus called us to I need to take up my cross and follow him maybe there's somebody here tonight that hasn't begun that journey yet that's what baptism is isn't it it's a commitment to this lifestyle it's a commitment to saying I'm dead to that way of living not only do I want to be forgiven of my sins but I want to be united with Jesus in baptism I want to be raised up to walk in newness of life Romans chapter 6 and maybe you haven't made that pledge that commitment that appeal to God for a clean conscience yet and you want to start that journey tonight and become a part of the people that are called to this radically different lifestyle. Or maybe we can just encourage you or pray for you. We're here to help you any way we can. Won't you come forward as we stand and sing?